John Waite's music and artistry is alive and well. Although his legacy as lead vocalist for The Babies and Bad English precedes him, he's best known for his solo work, most notably the smash hits Change and Missing You. This path has led him to recreating Missing You with Alison Krauss, and in 2003 he toured as a member of Ringo Starr's All-Star Band. Today his voice has defied the test of time, and is even better and stronger, as proven by his recent solo release, Rough and Tumble. Recorded in Nashville and L.A., Waite considers this effort a new beginning on his solo music journey, delivering a more organic, rock-oriented sound than many of his past solo projects. Inside Music Cast is pleased to welcome John Waite. Hey, John, thanks for joining us today. Welcome. Hey there. You know, I read an account that uh, when you were only 10 years old, uh, you filled in as the lead singer in your brother's band at a gig when the regular singer failed to show up. But you know, it was, it was yeah, it was actually the bass player. Oh, the bass, okay. bass player. Okay. All right, yeah, okay. it was it was the Sullied Street Youth Club, and um, I'd been down there to watch my brother's band play, and there was no bar. We we're all like you know, preteens, and uh, the bass player had gone off to get a pint of beer somewhere, uh-huh. and so my brother stuck a guitar in my hand and said, "Play this note and don't move." <laughs> and it was a Jimi Hendrix song. I think it was Third Stone from the Sun. And uh, I just stood there and played the bass, and all my friends came out of the woodwork and watched me, and the girls were watching me. And it was kind of like, um, <laughs> it was like, wow, you know, I can do this. <laughs> but there was there's a lot more to it than one note, but it was a great way to start. Absolutely. Well, I was thinking about that moment, you know, and, and going back prior to that moment, you must have been engaged in music at a, at a pretty young age, right? Well, I come from a musical family. My mum played the piano. My brother obviously was in a band when I was about eight. He'd, he'd got a guitar, a guitar guitar, which was kind of unheard of. Mm-hmm. And um, my dad uh, liked classical music. My cousin Michael was a phenomenal guitar player and banjo player. And um, I just came up through music. Music was very hard to get in Great Britain at that point in the 50s. There was no real rock radio at all. There was just Radio Luxembourg, yeah, which was for the armed forces stationed over in Germany. Mm-hmm. You could tune that in. And there was record stores that sold a lot of middle-of-the-road pop and stuff and some American imports. But it was basically like light jazz and, um, I don't know, traditional blues. And it was, it was before Dylan even. 
so yeah. there was nothing going on, but it was this big whisper. It was this suggestion of America coming in on the radio mm-hmm. and through fashion, and it's just before it broke. So it was uh, intriguing to get all these signals of something coming. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's interesting. You know, um, you know, you just mentioned, uh, apart from your one, let's call it your one-note introduction to bass yeah. guitar on stage, <laughs> you know, yeah. you, know uh, you you embraced actually the, the bass uh, and became a pretty accomplished bass player. How, how, um, how far did you take, uh, you know, the, your, uh, your talents on the bass? Well, I did three albums with the Babies. Mm-hmm. Uh, did, um, that was the first band I got a record deal with. Sure. And um, I was devoted to the bass. I mean, I, I grew up listening to Free, yeah. which was Andy Fraser on bass playing an EB3, Absolutely. playing like tuba notes and tuba runs. Yeah. And Jack Bruce, who was the bass player in um, Cream, and his solo album, Songs for Taylor, had an incredible effect on my songwriting and my thoughts about bass patterns and changes and passing notes but the the real impact came from Paul McCartney because that the first time I heard I saw standing there you know how could I dance and puts that note exactly uh, that passing note behind that uh, word mm-hmm. it became sort of sexy and sort of had this undercurrent of eroticism or something it wasn't just straight <laughs> rock right right and it's the suggestion of that uh just being played on on one note passing through a chord was enormously suggestive to me. But I like the sound of the bass. I like the look of it. Mm-hmm. I like the fact that it was four strings. It was very zen. Mm-hmm. It was capable of doing anything because it was like a line drawing. It was so simple. Mm-hmm. I like the sound of the double bass, cellos, oboe, everything. I just like bass passages. So then I based my whole entire vocal style on that. I would finish the chord with my voice and... You can hear that in a lot of other songwriters, especially at McCartney, because he's just playing on four strings, and he would sing the melody against the chord, the the bass note. And you can go into songwriting singing major or minor. There is no such thing when you're playing bass in the root note as major or minor. It's just just a one note. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. So you can change songwriting, especially when you're working with a band. You can suggest almost anything. And it's... um, it's a powerful instrument. You take the bass out of a band, and it's not a band. That's right. That's exactly right. We've had a lot of uh, bassists uh, as guests here on the show, some pretty incredible ones, and it's so interesting to hear how Paul McCartney was such an influence to so many of them. Yeah, and um, but he, by the time he was, I mean, the stuff that he plays, that, um, I got to play with Ringo in the All-Stars a couple of years ago. That's right, that's right. One of the most nerve-wracking things I've done, because <laughs> I thought, well, Really? Oh, yeah. Ringo's supposed to play, you know, with, with the best, and he's played with Jack Bruce and all that, but he's played mm-hmm. with McCartney when he, when he was cutting his teeth. Right. McCartney is, is like a walking staff of music. I mean, he's just like, I don't know what he dreams about when he sleeps. I mean, <laughs> every, everything is melody with him. That's right. And I had to really get my chops back up to some, somewhere near adequate to, to be in that position to play with Ringo, you know? Yeah, really. yeah, McCartney is part of the king of it, really. I mean, he's really something. He's uh, mm-hmm. he's just uh, he's, he's a law unto himself. Mm-hmm. You you attended Lancaster Art College and you studied I did. and you studied. I was surprised to see that you studied graphic design because I didn't realize uh, that about you. But yeah, you, you were interested in becoming an illustrator, right? For for children's books. Yeah, 
I'd like to say that I went to the art school as an outpatient. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but it was all girls and, and beer and drugs, and, and it was great, you know, but it was, it was art student life. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I was going to illustrate. Uh, I, I was a big fan of uh, Aubrey Beardsley and Arthur Rackham, and um, I liked uh, Japanese line drawings, and I was a big fan of Alphonse Mucha. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, uh, the, the education you get as an art student is like sociology as well, so you get to sure. learn a lot about um, society, and uh, mm-hmm. it was uh, an engrossing four years. But I would love to have been an illustrator, yeah. I mean, just thinking about higher education and your desire to be uh, a graphic artist, did you did you not study music in college at all? Oh, no, I never had a music lesson in my life. That's Yeah, I was curious about that. Well, you know, nobody that's any good does. I mean, Keith Richards said when he was at art school, he spent half the time in the men's toilet uh, <laughs> sitting there with a the guitar on his <laughs> You know, I mean, that's basically what you do at art school. Somebody's always got a guitar and they're showing you a new chord. Yeah. But a lot of uh, a lot of people that they can't do anything with go to art school, or they used to. Um, but I, I had a real love, a, tr- a profound love of art. I still do. You know, I, when I go to a different town, uh, if we're in Chicago, I'll go to the, the galleries and I'll go to the museums. Mm-hmm. Um, in Europe, you know, when we're on tour there, I'll stop off somewhere and just disappear. But to see uh, great art with your own eyes, Mm-hmm. You know, it's a relative term, Art, but right. uh, it's really something. You know, it's a beautiful thing. Well, just, you know, you said you never had a, a, a lesson in your life, but, but, but you probably did in some form. And what would you consider your music education to be? Just just throwing yourself out there? I'm like an idiot savant in some ways. I kind of like, you know, I, I close my eyes, step forward, and I can write music. Mm-hmm. And if I'm surprised, I can write something original. Uh, if I'm in a room full of people writing songs or trying to write a song... Uh, like, let's write a song. It's usually, I just look at it more like a producer and try and change everything and and go against the grain with it. And mm-hmm. if I'm left to my own devices, uh, I can come up with just about anything on the spot. Mm-hmm. And I keep loads of notebooks mm-hmm. in the house, but they're all blank. Uh, I have a, a scrapbook with lyrics sort of pasted in and clipped in, and you know, every so often I'll get them out and have a look, and it might fire something off. But a lot of the stuff I do comes off the top of my head. And under pressure, when I have to commit and I can't overwork it too much, um, I'll come up with something that's um, memorable, I hope. Very cool. Hey, John, I want to introduce you to uh, one of our correspondents who lives down in Boca Raton, Florida. Her name's Kim Riley. And Kim's got a couple questions for you. Hello, Kim. Hi, Hi John. Um, my first question is that you're definitely noticed as one of the greatest voices in rock and roll. And I was just curious who some of the artists that you grew up listening to, and did anyone in particular inspire you? Well, I think everybody inspired me, because um, when you hear somebody singing badly, or singing in a way that's obvious, or singing in that way that, like, hey, I'm a singer, watch me sing this song. And then you start crooning something. I, I always want to throw up. You know, I think, like with songwriting, it's a knee-jerk reaction. I, I think singing, the best singers just go. Uh, I don't warm up. I still smoke two or three cigarettes a day, and I'll have a glass of wine occasionally. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't like singers that sort of ponce around being famous. I think, yeah. it's just, you know, I'd get, I look at, you can see him coming, yeah. and it's like, get the fuck away from me. <laughs> I, I really can't stand it, you know? But the really great singers that moved me as a kid, uh, I would say Steve Marriott. Um, 
was one of the top. If there are, if there are four great rock singers in the world, he would be probably in the top two position. I couldn't imagine who would top him. But I could say the same thing about Paul Rogers. Oh, you hit it there. <laughs> oh, yeah, but with free. I think, you know, stuff like Be My Friend and the stuff that he wrote with Andy Fraser because Andy was a, a very um, musical guy that, that wasn't just a blues singer where Paul is intrigued by the blues. And then Andy would pull him out into these different melodies and Paul would have to sort of step into it, the same belief that he had in just singing simple blues and putting all his heart behind it. Right. And that made for free to be an extraordinary uh, band to listen to as, as a songwriter. It's just, it just knocked me sideways, you know. It was so clever. Yeah. But um, anybody, I mean, uh, you know, obviously Rod Stewart influenced an enormous amount of people. If, when, when this interview's over, I'll think of ten other people that I should have brought up. <laughs> but the really great ones are, are basically black. Yeah. And um, Otis Redding, Aretha Franklin. Um, God, I was listening to the Ink Spots the other day. I mean, yeah. um, Ella Fitzgerald is great. You, yeah. know? you know, English people draw everything from African-American music and country, and that's where we put ourselves in the rock and roll chapter somewhere. Mm -hmm. We get it all from those two things. And um, Americans come from a different place where they don't seem to be influenced by African-American music. Uh, or country. They're just in this sort of like rock thing that's, that pertains to America. It's, it's, it's like Midwestern rock or something. I don't, it's, I don't get it. It's mm -hmm. completely white. So it, it's <laughs> kind of like, I look at it and I sort of step to one side to let it get past me. I, I just don't know what to do with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, your voice is obviously a one of a kind, and it's very distinctive. Um, however, your writing is always changing, which is very cool. Like, if you take a classic baby's track or a bad English track and a solo track, they're all very different. Is yeah. I mean, where does your writing inspiration come from and make this so individual? Well, I, 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 I try to write about my own life, and the melodies I write are blues melodies. They're not, like, uh, extensive. Uh, like they don't go out too far into that white thing. I think it, it did slightly with bad English because that's what the other people in the band bring to that. Uh, and I think with the babies, I had the whip hand because I was the only guy that could sing and write. Um, with the solo stuff, I tried to do something that's, that's, that's absolutely my own uh, without other band members. I don't try to... Uh, a band is a band is a band. You know, yeah. right. And it'll always have an influence on the singer and how he writes because you accommodate everybody in the band, and they have a large personality when you're jamming. And that's what the, being in a band is about. You'd be a, you'd be a, an idiot to be in a band and try and be solo at the same time. <laughs> yeah. That be, yeah, that would be really stupid. Mm -hmm. And to you know to really enjoy being in a band, which is great. You know, you have to sort of interact. But when you're solo, I think people expect something else. They, they want something that's um, cuts to the quick. And I think. Um, the records that I've made as a solo are probably more... Uh, well, The Babies was pretty much... It was pretty honest, yeah. Um, I don't know. I, you don't have to tell me. But I think that I tried to keep it more Spartan on the solo stuff because I prefer that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Hey, John, this is Eddie. Um, we've interviewed um, a couple other English musicians recently, and uh, including uh, Al Stewart and Greg Lake. 
And, uh, you know, they both grew up in the outer areas of London. And, of course, being musicians, they eventually all migrated to, of course, London to pursue their musical interests. Uh, you did the same thing, didn't you? Yeah, I was um, I was in a local band called Grass Bay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, we were just playing the Seahorse Bar in Morecambe and, and playing the King's Arms in Lancaster in my hometown. Just local gigs. And we played... Um, just played for for peanuts, really, just beer money and and anything to put petrol in the in the van. And a, a guitar player called Ollie Ollie Alcock had been uh, down to London, played Reading Festival, uh, nearly got signed to a major deal, and came home for some reason. He split the band up, and then Ollie met me and said, "Do you want to go down to London and start a band?" And so I basically joined Ollie's band, and we got in a in a van one night with the roadie. And drove down. I remember. I remember leaving Lancaster in the afternoon and um, and being there about eight o'clock and uh, brushing my teeth real quick and then going to the Marquee <laughs> Club on mm. Water Street and um, that was like my first night as a professional musician in London. But it was kind of you know it was uh, odd. But yeah, London was everything. It was Kensington, Chelsea, yeah. West Hampstead. It was where everything was going on, fashion, girls, movies. The architecture was beyond belief. The pubs were interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was, you know, like, uh, it was in the 70s, you know, so it was all all happening. It yeah. was it was very, very uh, conservative, too, for all its swinginess. Yeah. Uh, very pale, very upper-class, kind of middle-class, very policed, uptight, uh, a lot of civil servants, you know, enough to make you nuts. And, you know, walking around with long hair and, and the whole the earring and everything, it's like people would look at it like you just landed from out of space. So <laughs> it wasn't that hip. I mean, yeah. it was, it's, it's London, but at that point, it was still a nature of being very conservative. Mm-hmm. When you were in London, you joined a band called England. and um, That was the band I joined, yeah. Yeah. But but then you, you ended up moving to the States to start a punk band called The Boys, but I think you weren't here very long. I think you moved back to England within a few months of arriving in the States. And I'm just curious, what initially brought you to the States, and, and what made you leave so quickly? Well, no, I, I, when I left England after two years of being down there with Ollie in West Hampstead, there was mm-hmm. me, the roadie, and Ollie sleeping in a room by, that was about nine feet by ten. <laughs> <laughs> and we were, yeah, and we were living off off rice, beans, and a pint of beer a day. Yeah, <laughs> and it was, it was, oh god, it was rough. But we, but we were very, very good. We played the Marquee Club occasionally and bring the house down. And but we couldn't get enough gigs to make it work. So I went after a big row. I just said, "Look, I'm leaving. I, I can't. Leave. You know, I, was, I weighed about ninety pounds. So I went home, and uh, the original singer that had been in England, mm-hmm. Jesse Ray, he. Uh, He'd gone to Cleveland, and he sent me this letter. I was absolutely, I had gone home, and I had nowhere to go, no band to play with. I wasn't welcome coming back home, because I had left home. My folks were, you know, it's like, you know, you've left. What are you doing? You can't come, you know, this sort of thing, like, you know, get your life together, go and do it. And this letter came to the letterbox asking me to come to Cleveland. So I went over to Cleveland. There's another band called The Boys that keeps getting confused with this version of whatever that was. Okay. But we called ourselves The Boys, and we were in um, in Northfield, Ohio, for about five, four or five months. Spent Christmas there, played a lot of clubs, mm-hmm. and saw uh, uh, MMS and listened to Kid Leo and 
the the Cleveland thing was really popping. They had they had this the Agora Ballroom where everybody came through. Right. I mean, Peter Frampton came through like twice a year. Big big bands, Rush, all those bands came yeah. and played the Agora, and, and there was a hip rock scene happening in Cleveland Absolutely. because of the radio and the press that was n- happening nowhere else in America. Uh-huh. You know, it was really... Uh, Ian Hunter had touched upon it in his book Diary of a Rock and Roll Star, which mm-hmm. I'd read in London, uh, actually on the way back to Lancaster on the bus. So there was a lot going on in Cleveland, and it was a fantastic experience to go and play there and meet all these people. And when I came back from that, because nothing happened, they just burn out. But I, I, I lived in London, and uh, I think it gave me the impetus to sort of put a band together and try and get back to America. I thought there was something about to happen in America, but it was me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was thinking that it, it might be something else, but I was trying to fulfill my own destiny, really, by taking myself back there. So so you you returned to London, and then uh, you, you connected with, with Mike Corby there, yeah. who was putting this uh, a band together and. And uh, I want to know if you uh, wanted to be involved um, with the babies at that time. Tell us about that connection with Mike. Well, there was, um, there was a guitar player come guitar dealer called Gordon that worked on Shaftesbury Avenue. He'd been a friend of me and Ollie's when I was in England. Mm-hmm. And he bumped into these guys, Mike and Adrian, they were trying to sort of get a record deal, but they didn't have a band. And we all met up for a drink one night, Gordon, me, Mike and Adrian at Sir Richard Steele's pub in uh, West Hampstead and uh, sat down and talked about putting a band together but they had no record deal they couldn't sing and they had no songs it was just an idea of does anybody here want to get a band together Yeah. I wrote songs could sing and played bass so I must have been like you know a prize to them mm-hmm. Gordon was sort of like not really as up to speed as he should be, really. And um, he was a great guy, though, a funny guy. But bit by bit, it it sort of fell together over about uh, a year. I think after about three months, we jammed twice, me and Mike, and it went absolutely nowhere. And I I told my girlfriend at the time, he said, just don't worry about it, it's not going to happen. I mean, Mike wouldn't really speak to me. (laughs) (laughs) I never really got to know him even after three years we probably had like 20 conversations it was impossible but when when Tony Brock joined on drums he was kind of a cushion between me and Mike and he could really play and um, and he saw it as well you know I mean it was kind of like we we could get a deal if we you know so I started writing songs being a songwriter Mm -hmm. and uh we started playing my songs. So I was in. You know, I thought, well, if the, I mean, I couldn't believe that anybody would be interested enough in <laughs> my songs uh, and me being a singer. But they were looking for a singer. Um, I'm sure the audition people, when I wasn't there and stuff, I'm sure that all that kind of stuff went on. But um, until we got Wally, there wasn't really... Mike left for about two months. We had a bass player come in called Matt Irving. Um... I stopped playing bass and played rhythm guitar when Matt was in the band. And then, as a last-ditch effort, Mike came back, and we decided to get a really great guitar player. So we advertised for a guitar player, and the last guy to show up was Wally Stalker. I, mm-hmm. I opened the door, and there was Wally, down on Tooley Street by the Thames. 
I remember opening the door and he was just stood there. And I knew it was him. I knew that this was the guy. It was one of those mystical yeah. experiences. It was like spinal tap. Yeah, yeah. It really was. You know, I looked, <laughs> I knew when I heard the doorbell ring. Uh-huh, jeez. I remember in slow motion running up the steps from the <laughs> cellar to get to the... Because we were in this big warehouse down on the docks. Uh-huh. We used to live there, really. And I opened the door and there was Wally. And I just knew it was like, almost like, where you been? <laughs> and he plugged in and he could really play and he knew about free and, and he could play some blues. Mm-hmm. And he was the catalyst, really, that, that drew me back into the band, because at that point, I'd just about given up on it, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, we won't spend a lot of time on the babies, because we really want to get to uh, your solo work, but a couple more questions here, um, and this one comes from Brian Pearson, who's one of our correspondents that is up in Chicago, and he has kind of an interesting question slash thought here. He said he always felt that your label kind of dropped the ball on promoting the babies, and I guess you guys were on Chrysalis at the time, and they had they had Blondie and, and Pat Benatar, and Brian said he had a chance to talk with Jonathan Cain once, and he remembers him commenting on how messed up the label was. I guess those were his words. What what are your recollections of about the support you received from your label? I think it was phenomenal when we came over. Yeah. I think we, we had the head of the company. Uh, we'd made a, a fairly bad first record with a with a producer that was not the right guy. We uh-huh. wasted a lot of songs, and we were about to disband when Terry Ellis, the head of the company in America, saw us play in London and said, these guys are really good. I remember really clicking with Terry. I, he understood me right off the bat, and he, he loved the fact that I'd been to America with no money and that I'd sort of like come back and have this plan, and he got it, and he understood me, and he understood the songs I was writing. And he bankrolled this, this promotional tour and then bankrolled a second record. And they were having distribution problems. And I think Terry was trying to get it over in America. You know, we're on every talk show, on every rock show. Yeah. Yeah. We're all, all over the radio. And they got the, the single, isn't it, time to 14, but it should have probably gone top five. Um, they were having distribution problems. And... We were, I'd have no idea why they couldn't do it, but they didn't put the records in the stores. And then we came back from the road and we made the head first record about a year later, mm-hmm. eight months later. And then the shit hit the fan with the songwriting because nobody was really writing songs but me. <laughs> and yeah. Mike was kind of like, Mike still wasn't talking to me. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of like, Jesus Christ, you know. And we, we kind of blew up and made two versions of head first. But, um,. It's just the way it went. And from that point on, I think that uh, Terry left to go and race horses in Europe or something and left us with the American company, and they were scared to spend any more money on us. Wow. So uh, I think it just backfired. I should have just left then, really. Yeah. But uh, the whole thing fell apart. I kind of rebuilt it thinking that, you know, I was doing something cool. But I think we shot our bolt by that point, I think. Yeah. Well, interesting. You know, I I discovered a very interesting fact about the babies, and 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 uh, it's a connection between the babies and and Andrew Crouch and the disciples. And uh, you guys, uh, when you were touring, um, you know, the Baybats, of course, who were an amazing compilation of singers. Um, they, they were basically uh, from Andrew Crouch's band. It was you know Lisa Roberts, Myrna Matthews, Pat Henderson, and and uh, I didn't know that there was ever a connection to to those singers, and I found that pretty interesting. You know. Yeah, they were church singers. They yeah. Were- they were, well, a couple of them were. One of them was pretty rock and roll. Right. Uh, but uh, they were great, and they were the sweetest girls in the world. I, I, want, I once introduced them on stage as the Blue Nuns. Did you really? And, um, <laughs> yeah. 
Yes, I used to drink a lot of Blue Nun. And I said, and ladies and gentlemen, the Blue Nun. <laughs> and um, <laughs> one of them broke down and went to the airport. We had to go and get her back. She was really upset about it. Oh, my God. So, <laughs> they were very religious girls, beautiful girls. I loved them enormously. Well, it, it sort of reinforces what you're saying about, you know, your attraction to the black singer, the soul singer. Yeah, I mean, taking three right? black girls out on stage. We came out in uh, Chicago between 38 Special and Molly Hatchet. And there was, there was beer bottles coming out of the lights. And people screaming and shouting because we were black girls. And um, we just, you know, I, I, put, I said a few things to the audience and tried to keep it together. But yeah. it was a very different world back then. Yeah. And um, it was a kind of hateful thing. It was a weird thing. I still look back on that and scratch my head. Right, yeah. exactly. <laughs> sure. <laughs> John, after the baby split, you launched your solo career in 1982 and you released your first album, Ignition. And yeah. it was successful here in the States with the single change making the top 20. Tell yeah. us about, the, uh, about this new path of being a solo artist and what you were feeling at the time with your, musician, with your music and your name being the focus as opposed to being like part of a band. Right. Well, I'd moved back to, I'd gone home, bought a small cottage with my girlfriend, and then I, after six months, came back to America. I lived in New York City, had a small crash pad, a little studio apartment on 72nd Street, almost directly opposite where John Lennon had been shot, like six months before. Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. So it was kind of very poignant and weird. And um, the Upper West Side of Manhattan. And I, I totally and completely fell in love with New York City. Mm-hmm. And I, it, it just changed my life, the fact that the people there were like me. Everybody had energy, and everybody knew about um, what was playing at this at a, an art theater or at the movies or reading a certain book or magazine or an event or a happening or a party or something. I was connected to them all immediately almost. They took me in. I was one of them and I felt like I was I was finally at home. Mm-hmm. And I slugged I met Ivan Kroll who was about to leave Iggy Pop's band and he played with Patti Smith. Mm-hmm. And um he was great. We're both European, and we're both in New York City, and we had nowhere to go. And we, we put together all these songs, mm-hmm. and um, eventually had enough for an album. But I was fighting the record company all the way. I mean, they were they, just heavy-handed. Chrysalis at that point, um, I couldn't wait to get off the label. It was just an impossible situation. Yeah. They didn't get me at all. What didn't they get about you? I'm curious about that. That I could write. I see. I mean, it was okay. like, you know, that I could write and sing and that, yeah. that I didn't need... Uh, I mean, I don't like A&R people, really. Yeah, <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> I don't think anyone... Somebody once said that the A&R stands for always wrong. And I thought that was just the best thing <laughs> he ever said, you know. But the A&R guy was a prick. And I didn't like him. And I still don't like him. I saw him in a restaurant about five years ago. I almost decked him. It's slug. slug, you know. But, but that's just big business. You know, it's yeah. like being patronized by somebody. If you yeah. don't do this mix differently, we're, we're going to stop paying for the record. And I told him to fuck off at one point and uh, left the studio for two weeks and just closed the entire album down. Uh-huh. But Chrysalis turned into something that was just a nasty uh, relationship and, and to let me out of that deal, to let me out of the, the baby's deal, the whole thing, they kind of took me to the cleaners. So I had to start again from less than scratch mm-hmm. when I finally got off. But um, Wow. They even blew the first solo record. So it was just like I just had nowhere to go. Yeah. Well, you know, of course, moving down the road a little bit, your, it was your 1984 album, No Breaks, that 
really catapulted your name worldwide with yeah. the song Missing You, which was, it was number one here in the States, and I believe the album also was uh, a top ten. And, uh, you know, this is from my perspective, knowing about you, and obviously, you know, I, I really latched onto you when I heard the song Change. And I knew of, of course, you, about, you know, of course, through the babies, but yeah. um, I always thought of you as really a high-energy rocker at heart. And were you surprised at the time that this, this ballad garnered so much attention and success? I mean, it's truly a great song, but... I think maybe that's been the problem, that Missy <laughs> was so big, and it was, it's a good, very good song. Yeah. And it's a complete mistake. I was singing the... I was making up all this stuff over somebody else's chord changes, and that's why it's so odd. Uh-huh. I even sang through the guitar solo. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's got no symmetry to it. It's just all over the place, but that's why it works. Interesting. It was all made up on the spot. 90% of it was made up in maybe 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I even used the Every Time I Think of You, the baby's song, as a, as a line to get me going. And as soon as I started singing, I, was, I got all these beautiful rhymes and this, this longing, you know, and I, and mm-hmm. I managed to, to just, just like I was talking about before about having no musical education, but mm-hmm. I can close my eyes and step forward and make it happen. Right, right. And when I hit the chorus, it was, I ain't missing you at all since you've been gone away. I ain't missing you no matter what my friends say. Mm-hmm. And there's a storm that's raging through my frozen heart tonight. I ain't right. missing you at all. And that, and the entire first verse, came out all in one piece. <clears throat> and you can say, wow, that's really good, but I couldn't take credit for it, really. Because yeah. it is just like sleepwalking. <laughs> but it was, and I knew when I'd done it, I knew it was like, uh, it was kind of orgasmic. You know, you'd be all your life, you're trying to get to this moment of like real, true freedom and release. Yeah, yeah. And I stepped forward and I had it. Mm-hmm. And I knew I'd had it. I knew it was number one. Wow. And I took the cassette back to the studio, and there were mix- David Thorner was mixing the record, and Gary was playing a couple of guitar solos. Gary Myrick, I said, listen to this. And I played it to him, and everybody went quiet. Because <laughs> they, they knew, knew as well. But what everybody knew, it yeah. was like it was <laughs> an insane thing. It was like, uh, you know, it was just it was it was just one of those songs. But like you say, I'm a rock and roll singer, but I have this sort of ability to sort of like turn flip the coin and and have this other side. And I don't want to be in a band that's one thing or the other. I don't want to be, you know, you do get bands that are like one trick ponies. Mm-hmm. And I just don't. I coming from the blues and coming from country mm-hmm. there's much more of that uh, many-sided thing to it and I think if you're any good at all you have to show all those sides simultaneously you can't be so one-dimensional mm-hmm. I mean that will mean that you'll be gone in a year or two years I have no intention of of just making one album and going to sort of get a job somewhere this is what I do and there's more to me than just being you know one thing I'm a human being right and you know just uh, to counter exactly what i said though is is that i think of you as is the rocker i think that's that's kind of your image but you know you got to also think about some other amazing bands like kiss and and say alice cooper for example who were you know they were also you know big time rockers that's how people viewed them but some of their two of their biggest hits were, were ballads you know yeah ki- that tends to be what happens i mean but then again head first when head first hit really big the track uh-huh. we had every time I think of you on AM radio. It was like number five or number four, whatever. And then we had head first on on FM radio, and that was a, you know it was number one or number three or whatever. I mean, the babies were always too. That it was very important to me that we had both those things. Uh-huh. And for that one moment there, the babies were were both those things at the same time. Yeah, it was like being schizophrenic. Yeah. but it's great doing that to an audience when you come out and you give them head first and you all to get out of the seats. Right, and then you give them something like every time I think of you. Mm-hmm. And it's just like it's just straight to the heart of things. 
Yeah. And then you give them another rocker. Mm. But it's not so intellectual. I don't sit back and, and sort of plot it. It's just that once you write one song on a record, you start piecing together different songs around it, mm-hmm. like putting together a jigsaw. And it ends up being like a book and chapters of a book. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, I've got a question for you. I mean, I was listening to, you know, Missing You Again just recently just to get reminded of the enormity of that song. What 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 key was that originally written in, John? Um, good point. Uh, it was, I think it was written in E, and I think we, uh, I think we sped it up in the mastering mm-hmm. to make it more intense. So it Which went up to maybe it, an F. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's actually, actually it's in, um, I think it's in F sharp now. Really? No, the reason I'm asking is because, you know, uh, I played that, and of course I, I sort of jumped 20 years ahead to yeah. your collaboration with Alison Krauss for yeah. her compilation, and I noticed that the key was almost it identical, the same note. Yeah. And the bass line, you know, it, 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 nothing really changed, and uh, um, I just found that really interesting. I mean, after all these years, I mean, you're, the, 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 the song is, uh, you know, it doesn't have to be lowered at all for your voice or altered no, no, at all. No, 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 you no. Know? I, I, you know, I could probably sing in a higher key. I don't, um, I, I, for some reason, I got more of a range now than I had when I was a younger guy. Yeah. And, um, and like, with every time I think of you, um, yeah, because uh, maybe I was wrong, not knowing how the story right. goes. I want to live wrong. But then, uh, I, on the original, uh, the Bearbets was singing the answers. Mm-hmm. And when we do it live now, I just sing it flat out as one one melody. Yeah, right. And hit it hard. Yeah. And, and I probably couldn't do that uh, when I was trying to sing it the first time around. Exactly. Um, so, and I've always said if I have to lower the keys, um, I think I'll just. Uh, take a bow and, you know, say thanks. And I, <laughs> you know, I don't think, I don't want to do that. I think there's a real life in everything and a, a genuine uh, energy in, in something. And when you tamper with it or market it or try and um, declaw it, you know, it's time to go home. I think yeah. if I lower the keys ever, I'm, I'm out the door. Yeah. Well, you know, just talking about the, the collaboration with Alison Krauss, that was a beautiful connection with her. The, everything vibes so, the purity of her voice. It sort of changed the atmosphere of the song in a way, you know, it, uh, but, but it, uh, it worked so nicely. I, she, she saw it differently. Yeah. You know, um, I wrote the song about being in denial and being angry yeah. because there was nowhere to go. You know, it's kind of like you're in a motel room somewhere and yeah. you've really fucked up and you can't go home <laughs> and you're trying to get through. Yeah, yeah. And anything could happen in the next 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. You know, you're really on the edge of your life. And she saw it as being um, the exact opposite. You know, mm-hmm. uh, something like more flirtatious, yeah. more like, you know, sweeter. Yeah. And we had the two different, um, two different angles. I can see that. Song. Yeah, but um, it was wonderful to cut the song again, and uh, to to just make it like I say, I like Spartan things, to take it even more further out. And Mike Shipley did a wonderful job mixing it. Mm-hmm. You know, he just did a great job. It's beautiful. And, um, yeah. Eddie and I both agree that we we both really love this collaboration with Allison, and uh, we want to take a quick break and we want to give this one a listen. This is "Missing You" from our guest today, John Waite and Allison Krauss.
talked about your voice a moment ago and how you said if your voice changed or you have to drop keys, then you're just going to hang it up. But, you know, the one thing I noticed and when I listened to that <clears throat> is that, you know, it, it could have been at first, honestly, this is my thought when I first heard it. I thought that Alison Krauss 
took, you know, created the song and they took your tracks from the original and mm-hmm. placed them back in. Mm-hmm. I'm serious. And you know, you've, you've seen that happen a lot, like when Natalie Cole and her father. Right. You know, oh, I know. That's, that's not, I would, no, but my I, point is, is that yeah. you were, I mean, it was like spot on. It's like, you know, you would recorded that 20 some years ago and your voice sounded the same to me. Pristine. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe you shouldn't because, like I said, I still smoke. <laughs> I roll my own cigarettes and I, I will have a glass of wine occasionally. Well, that's what keeps your voice in shape. No doubt. Well, I, you know, people say that I'm the smiling, but I really don't know where he's come from. But it's a wonderful thing to be my age yeah, and uh, to have lived through all the stuff that I've survived. And and it's all sort of like character. You know, it's, it hasn't lowered my voice or, or made it any different. It's mm-hmm. made it stronger. Uh, but having all that life experience now, there's nothing really I wouldn't attempt. Yeah. Rod Stewart once said there's only a couple of things he couldn't yeah. sing when yeah. he tried to sing them. And there's been a couple of things that I've tried when I've gone like, this just isn't for me. Right, right. But you only learn by going into the bear's cave. You know, you only go in, you know, there was a Van Morrison song I did once on, on an album called Temple Bar called um, Someone Like You. Absolutely, yeah. And, uh, and I thought, oh, what a beautiful song, you know, Someone Like You. And um, I knew, you know, because he's Irish, he has some wild soul. He has a Celtic soul. Does, yeah. Does, uh, um, and... When you, his magic is that he can walk into a, a, a gigantic space and fill it, or whatever space he fills, it's enough to make the space right around it. It's a huge thing to pull off. I mean, you don't learn that. That's, you're given that from something. And when I first sang Someone Like You, I couldn't believe how empty it sounded, you know? I went deep inside myself to sing that song. I had to really think about mm-hmm. soulfulness in its pure, in its most pure form. You know, I mean, people can over emote. You know, you get these things that come in and they got this big operatic fucking voice and it's just <laughs> dreadful. You yeah. know, they're just over singing and it's like, look at me, I can hit this note, and it's like, get the fuck out. You know, it's like that isn't even singing. That's just like showing off or like showboating or whatever. It is. Yeah. The great, beautiful songs of the world, the Celtic songs, like Danny Boy and that stuff, yeah, they yeah. could be sung by a hobo, and mm-hmm. it still break your heart. Mm-hmm. It's got nothing to do with having chops. Right. Even though I've got chops, I, t- I aspire to something else, you know? Mm-hmm. It's not about the chops, man. It never was. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I was looking at something. When I scrolled through your albums over the years and looked at the writing credits, you know, the majority of your songs are written solely by you, but you have, you've collaborated with a variety of other songwriters oh, yeah, throughout your career. Yeah. But my, my question is, is, do you have a preference to work alone or by collaboration, or does this really depend on the situation? Well, back to what I said about songwriters, if, you, if I just jump into something and close my eyes, a whole different world comes into view. Yeah. If I sit down and write uh, methodically, like, what do I want to say? I, I tend to not move. It's, I don't want to get so personal i can't make myself go that i i can uh-huh but but if somebody plays the wrong chord and i i'll i react to it mm-hmm. and i'll i'll sing something different and i'll, I'll lyrically go somewhere else i mean a mm-hmm. songwriting in it's in its most uh it's just a reaction yeah. to the world you know right right but i need someone to put that boot up my ass to make me step <laughs> forward but once i've stepped <laughs> forward i've got the whole thing absolutely and that's why I usually work with a guitar player, whoever he is. Uh-huh. Uh, but me and Glenn Burtnick have written some very beautiful things together. We wrote a Downtown, which I thought was uh, an epiphany for me as far as a writer, as a 
try and sort of sing about your life, your real life in New York City, and that's yeah. what Temple Bar was about. That record was about that experience. Okay. Um, John, how did you and Ricky Phillips reconnect for Bad English, and were there any collaborations between you two after the babies and before Bad English? Uh, I have no idea. I think we're just, we've already got the three of us together, Neil and John and me, and we're looking for a bass player, and, and he was handy. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't see him, apart from going to, for a beer or something, occasionally after the babies. I think he was playing with a lot of different people. He was doing quite well. Um, and I haven't seen much of him since, really. Okay. Hey, I've, uh, John, we've got a question from Uwe Reith, who uh, is one of our correspondents over in Germany. And yeah. he, <clears throat> this is a bad English question. And he said, he said bad English had, you know, huge success with songs such as When I See You Smile and Price of Love in the 80s. Yeah. But um, the band split up before the second album, Backlash, was released in 1991. And, yeah. you know, he said, from what I know about you, you know, I get the feeling that uh, being in a band maybe wasn't your thing, that your solo career is what you really wanted to focus on. Uh, you Not haven't necessarily. been... I, I think, like I say again, if somebody's in the room yeah. and, and they can throw down and, and do something... Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm always trying to go somewhere that I haven't been before. I didn't want to make Bad English One again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think there was a willingness to just do that and yeah. go home. Right. And I think everybody's watching. We're capable of doing something wonderful. Let's push the envelope as much as we can. But it was too soon for us to go back in the studio. We had no real songs. Right. And we were being forced back into the studio by the record company and the management. Like, mm. we need this for the summer. <laughs> right. Biggest mistake. And I fought that for like six weeks. I said, I'm just not going to do it. And then I got curious to think... Could I be the Lone Ranger and come in here and save the day? You know, really stupid. Right. And it we just it was just not enough time, and uh, it was just a bad situation. And I think it just blew us up. You know. Yeah. Uve also had another question for you, and it's it's this kind of an interesting one. I I'd, I'd never heard this before. But is it true that you were considered to be a lead singer and foreigner, like around 1987? <laughs> <laughs> As well, <he> yeah. <laughs> uh, um, <laughs> is, that a, is that laughing, it yes? a couple of times, all this stuff. You know, I keep getting offered jobs in, in people's bands, but um, uh, it didn't go anywhere. You know, it was... Uh, I think that, that I... See, I get offered jobs in, in, in bands every couple of months. Somebody rings up and says, look, we need you, you know? Yeah. And uh, if you join an established band, you've got to sing all these songs that, you know, um, that you didn't write. And, and if you go on the road... Being in a band like that, you know, your own songs are kind of put on hold. I think Paul Rogers did a, a tremendous job singing with Queen. Yeah, Nobody he did. Nobody expected that. Yeah. You had a, a very androgynous figure like Freddie. Right. And then you had one of the most uh, macho singers in the world come in yeah. and take over Freddie's place. Yeah. Just think about that. Yeah, that's an interesting I mean, point. Yeah. It's just like... Jesus Christ, how's he going to handle this? You know? <laughs> and he nailed it. He nailed it to death. And he did Bad Company songs in there. And he was great. God bless him. Yeah, he did great with that. I agree. I'm a huge fan of Paul Rogers myself. He, he really took that to the highest level. Oh, yeah. Tremendous. By the way, John, Kim is the biggest Paul Rogers fan on the <laughs> play, face well, of the I'm earth. Well, I'm glad. So. <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm, I'm just really, I, you know, he's, he's just, he's a sensational singer. <laughs> 
Um, I'm curious. You you did a cover of uh, Bill Withers' "Ain't No Sunshine" on the Temple Bar record, and I was just wondering yeah. what inspired you covering that classic. Um, it's a great song, and it's a phenomenal version. Well, it's one of those songs. It's it's like black music, you know. There's uh, man, it's like that great, beautiful '70s American American African American music. It's so descriptive of uh, a time. The 70s is a strange time. It's a strange decade. But some of the best country music was made in the 70s. And uh, African-American music, too. I mean, just Stevie Wonder was doing stuff. The Temptations, you know. It's just like... But Bill Withers had this... uh, Probably his most famous song. But uh, that's another one. You know, it's like, can you sing this? Can you give it a... uh, can you can you do anything to to add to what it already is, you know? And it's questionable, but it seems to fit in with Temple Bar. Temple Bar was about sunset. Yeah. It was about walking downtown from 60th Street mm-hmm. yeah. all the way down to Lafayette and Bleecker, where the mm-hmm. Temple Bar was. And I would go, I walk down there every night and have a martini or a glass of wine, yeah. and then walk into the East Village. And it was it was the whole album was written about New York and the past. It's a phenomenal album. Oh, thank you. It's my favorite, yeah. And it's really about walking downtown with all those memories Yeah. to get oblivious, really. (laughs) It was about suicide, really. It was about, like, you know, it was really about the last night. Wow. And uh, it was profoundly sentimental. But I thought that was the only way to go. It almost became a country record in some weird way. It has no country overtones, (laughs) but I was looking for the, the key of country music but not to use violins, you know, not to use any banjos, but that yeah. tremendous heartbreak that you get from Hank Williams where he goes as far out as you can imagine. Right, right. And it's almost virgin on self-pity. Mm-hmm. It's so dark. And that's what I was going for with Temple Bar. I want to mention three three um, of a former uh, Inside Musicast guests. Uh, Richard Page, Greg Bissonette, a drummer, and, of course, Steve Lukather. All these guys have something in very much in common with you is that they've either in the past they've been part or I believe Steve Lukather will be a part of Ringo Starr's all-star band oh, that, that's coming up. And and you were part of the band in, uh, in 2003. Yeah. Um, you had a, a host of amazing, talented people. Tell us about that experience. Well, yeah, I got the phone call. Would I go and play with Ringo? And I, I said, yeah. I mean, I was, I'd been offered this large amount of money to go and uh, sing some Elton John songs in, um, uh, in some show. And I was actually considering that. I thought, well, I hadn't done that yet. Mm-hmm. And, um, but I was, I was backing away from that when the phone rang, and it, mm-hmm. and it was the offer to go and play with Ringo. But I said, yeah, immediately. I didn't have to think about it. Yeah. Right. And, uh, and one day I was in the bathtub, and the phone rang, and uh, the, the message machine came on, and it was Ringo calling from England, you know. You know, hey, John, are you, up to, you know, where are you, man? <laughs> and uh, I jumped out of the bathtub and picked up the phone, you know, and said, hey, Ringo. <laughs> but it was, uh, it was very, uh, it was like a lot of things come in full circle. Yeah. It, it, when I was a kid, Ringo was probably the, the Beatle that was the most accessible. And um, I wanted to be a drummer before I wanted to be a bass player. And it was, it was a wonderful thing to meet him and the band. It was, it was a very hot band. Yeah. And uh, I think it's probably the most modern uh, version up to that. But I don't know. I've, I've not done a lot of homework on it. But it yeah. seemed like it was a lot of more contemporary mm-hmm. people in that version of the All-Stars. We had Colin Hay and Paul yeah. Carrick and Sheila E. and Mark Rivera. Yeah. Uh, that yeah. was probably my favorite incarnation of that band. 
Yeah, the weird thing is we were playing in Radio City and uh, and Simon Kirk jumped up and played drums on the second drum kit. <laughs> wow. Uh, and I was playing bass and for a split second there, for, for about three minutes, I was playing on stage with my three favorite drummers. That was Ringo Starr, Sheila E. and Simon Kirk. Wow. And they were all on stage with me at one point playing Jeez. one song. A little help from my friends, I think it was. Mm-hmm. But... uh can you imagine that, playing with three of your favorite drummers simultaneously? <laughs> <laughs> that, that's I mean, it's like, you know, it's like a gift from heaven, you know, the weirdest thing. Yeah. We had Sheila E. on the show uh, not too long ago, and you're right, she's an amazing talent. She's, she's incredible. You know, what's even more amazing is that, um, you know, Ringo, uh, who, who's up there a little bit in age, um, you know, he's still out there. He's about ready to release a brand new album. That's right. And uh, just two nights ago, I saw him on Conan O'Brien just uh, <laughs> with the band playing. And, and the guy is phenomenally just active and out there still involved in music. He's got something to give still, you know? Yeah, no, he, he loves what he does. Yeah. He, he just loves it. He loves to, to get in front of people and tell jokes and sing. And, and I think he likes to entertain. I think if he, if he was left to his own devices, he'd just disappear. I think he just loves to play. Yeah, <laughs> I think you're right. Hey, um, another one of our correspondents, Scott Gross, who's from Tampa, Florida, has a specific question about the Ringo tour. And he says, you know, everybody in the band, obviously, with Ringo plays an instrument. And he said, I understand that you hadn't played bass on stage in yeah. quite some time when you took that Ringo gig. And not only did you have to learn the Ringo songs, but you also had to learn the other artist hits, too. And he wanted to know how stressful or challenging was that for you? It was really stressful. Yeah. I mean, I, I arrived nervous as a cat to just meet Ringo. But then you on day one and day two of the, the rehearsals, you're trying to play funk, you're trying to play uh, in every different style you can imagine with the person who wrote the song, you know? Yeah. And um, it's just, I mean, it's so, I mean, me and Colin left the first day of rehearsal and, he, and we were walking down this hallway and he turned to me and said, now's a good time to start drinking again. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and it was you know it was like you know ah. but uh it was so out of control and it took us about five days to, to climb on top um but the sax player the, the the musical director uh he was great and uh he walked us through and and uh after a while we got more confident they filmed the first night and the second night they didn't even wait a week to film the show. Holy cow. So what you're seeing when you watch a DVD is, is the opening night, you know, and it's, and it's pretty damn good. But it really did get to the point after about uh, three weeks we were just really raging through the shows. It was great. Hey, you know what? <clears throat> I want to jump ahead. I want to spend some time, because uh, we're running out of time, I want to spend some time chatting with you about your latest album, Rough and Tumble, which... Uh, which caught me by surprise is your 10th solo effort. And what I noticed first and foremost about this album is that it's, it's fresh, but it's, it's also very familiar. And the familiarity, of course, is what we've talked about throughout this, this interview is your voice. You know, it's, to me, it's hard to believe you've been singing, you know, since the late 70s as your voice remains, I don't know, a good way to describe mm-hmm. it is ageless. <laughs> and what's fresh about this record is the overall sound. You know, to me, it's, it's more organic. It's it's uh, it's a little bit edgy, and it's more raw than what we've heard from you in the past. And would you say that's a fair assessment? Yeah. If you go back and listen to the No Breaks album, that's a pretty raw record. <laughs> no, that's true. Uh, that's true. That's really like a three-piece band throwing down with some keyboards thrown in on top. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I hadn't had the luxury of getting that. Uh, the When You Were Mine album got close to that. The one that followed Temple by it was very dry, and it was cut live. 
and it's a sound I like. I like it. I, once again, I don't like doing overdubs. I don't like twelve strings. I don't like production. I, I don't like any of that shit. It makes me nuts. Yeah. Uh, when I'm singing live and somebody tries to put something on the vocal, it makes me insane. You know, I just don't want it. And any guitar player that comes out and starts adding a bunch of effects is a prick. You know, I mean, it's just, <laughs> it's just, it's just, it's the mark of an idiot. You know, <laughs> yeah. if you can't do it on an acoustic guitar and make it convincing then you really don't have it in the first place. And if you do have to have the super woof, uh, excellent overdrive pedal to get any kind of tone out of your guitar, yeah, then yeah. you're an idiot. You know, I mean, I mean, Clapton never had one when he was starting out, and Jimi Hendrix had a first tone and a wah-wah pedal. I mean, as a singer, my favorite singers don't have all that gloss on their voice. Yeah. You know, arena rock does, because people want it to sound larger than life and everything's got delay and echo on it. But I can't right. stand it. I mean, it, it's enough to make me <laughs> yeah. leave town, you know. <laughs> and um, I can't do it. I think it's one of the reasons Bad English broke up is that it, it was that kind of deluxe, major, mainstream sound. And I, I don't particularly have that. I have no interest in it, tell the truth. Um, you collaborated on this album with Kyle Cook. And yeah. I'm just wondering how that, I mean, it worked out really great. And I'm curious how that came about. Well, there's a friend of mine in, in Indiana called Jeff Worley, and he's a great guy. He's been a friend of mine for about 12 years, and I, we used to do gigs in Las Vegas for the women's shelter there called Shade Tree okay. every year at the House of Blues. And Jeff knew Kyle, because he's from Indiana, and he knew the Matchbox guys uh-huh. through local musicians. And he kept saying to me that I should go and check out Kyle. You two would get on like a house of fire and blah, blah, blah. And I'd been stung working with people, and I just had no interest, you know. I mean, yeah. I, you know, I really thought, oh, Christ, not again. You know, it's like you keep being, being introduced to people. They're just wicked, kind of weird people. It's the music business. And so right. I, was, you know, I put it off and put it off. But I was in Nashville, and he was there, too. And uh, Jeff said, go on, call him. So I called him up, and we met Cold in a writing room on Music Row and got on immediately, and we wrote Better Off Gone the beginning of it, immediately, the same day, and agreed to get back together again. And we got back together and we wrote, um, I think it was uh, Love's Going Out of Style, and then we wrote Evil, all like in a week. So it was, it was just like uh, going to the races. We had a lot of uh, common interests in music and looked for the same things. And he's genuine. Kyle is a genuine guy. He's got a lot of soul, and he's a cool guy, and I like him. He actually played guitar on our American tour, our guitar player left the band, and Kyle came and played the entire American tour. And then he went to Europe and played the European tour with us. Yeah. So, you know, he's just a stand-up guy. Yeah. We played my hometown last year for the first time since I was 17. Yeah. At the Grand Theatre. It's the oldest working theatre in Britain. Wow. Shakespeare went there. Dickens went you know, it's wow. Shakespeare. Dickens went there and uh, recited some poems and... Uh, just incredible old theater, but, but I went there and Kyle plugged in and we played to a sold-out house. The last time I was in that theater, I was watching Wind in the Willows, with my, and I was six years old. Yeah. So a lot of things have come full circle for me, but Kyle was a big part of it. He was great. Well, now you, Very have, a, cool. you have a couple of other uh, Indiana connections, because that's where Eddie and I are. <laughs> ah, there you go. <laughs> We're in Indianapolis, so that, that's, that's interesting. I stay there a lot. I go and see Jeff. He's got a great family and a, and a huge guest house. So I'd go and stay on, uh, I think it's Central Avenue. Mm-hmm. The, oh, no, Meridian. Oh, Meridian, yeah, right. Meridian? That's here yeah. in Indianapolis, yeah. 
Yeah. Very cool. Hey, one of my favorite tracks on uh, Rough and Tumble is your cover of uh, Gabe Dixon's Further the Sky, which is yeah. which is one of my very favorite songs. And I've, I've been a fan of Gabe's for quite a while. And his 2008 release that contained this song is, is such a fantastic record. And in fact, Gabe has been a guest here on Inside Music Cast. And I wanted to... Uh, I wanted to ask you about your relationship with Gabe and why you chose Further the Sky for the new record. Well, I, I rang up Allison. I mean, I, I, I'd made these five songs with uh, Kyle Cook. Right. And then I'd gone to tour Europe, and it was meant to be an EP. You know, we're going to do this on the internet and release it into the stores. Okay. Five tracks. Mm-hmm. And when I got back, of course, the record company that was thinking of putting it out and the management all wanted more songs. And I, kept, and I had no, no more songs, and I, me and Kyle had kind of done this project. So I was back on the road, and eventually I was left uh, in August. I was going to go back to Europe to see my mother in September, mm-hmm. and I had to do something if I was ever going to do it. And I put it off for three months, maybe even four months. But I rang up Alison uh, and said, what do you got? You know, is, there, is there any songs that you could recommend? I'm, I'm in a corner. I've got to find... I've written these songs, but I'm like one short. Can you help me out? And she said, Further the Sky. Uh-huh. And uh, it was a beautiful thing. I, yeah. I think it was, uh, you know, God bless Allison for suggesting it. Yeah. Well, for selfish reasons, uh, I want to play John's version of Further the Sky, which, you know, it's really a bluesier, edgier take on the original track uh, from Gabe Dixon. So let's uh, take a quick break and take a listen.
Gabe also returned that favor and recorded one of your songs, uh, Change, uh, for an EP that he released. And uh, what, did you get a chance to hear that? What, what did you think about no, it? No, I've, I've never. I've ne- I know that we're going to have a crack at missing you. Yeah. But I, I'm surprised at that. So if he's done change, God bless him. Um, you know, Scott Gross has a, uh, a correspondent in Florida. He has a question, and he talks about the track uh, "If You Ever Get Lonely," which really captures uh, the same kind of uh, longing feeling that was in "Missing You." And uh, he noticed that you share credits with four other writers. Explain a little bit about the evolution of uh, how this uh, song came together. Well, at the time, my manager had heard this song called "If You Ever Get Lonely," and it was kind of a Nashville pop song, and he kept playing me it. And I, I didn't like it, but I thought the chorus was absolutely beautiful. But the rest of the song was very Nashville, middle-of-the-road pop. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it had been written, really, to be a pop song, probably for some young guy or girl. You know, it's kind of like more of a, a pop crossover. Uh-huh. And it was very wordy, and it was, it was kind of... I hated it, to say the truth. But I loved the chorus. <laughs> and um, but this guy was really a great guy, and I, I liked him a lot, and I trusted his... It's uh, it's few, Jim yeah. Harvard, and he'd, he'd been the head of EMI when I'd missing you out. So I trusted his, uh, his his input, and I knew it was a beautiful chorus. And I just said, "Look, I can make this really great if I rewrite the rest of the song. I know I can do it. It's just wrong. It's not it's not dark enough." And um, me and Kyle, at the end of one of the days recording, I sat down and started playing these chords and sang, "Thanks for calling. It's so good to hear your voice." Mm-hmm. And then Kyle said, you keep breaking up, it'll static and the noise. And I said, but I'll keep listening, because I never had a choice when it came to you. And that was it. We wow. had these basic chords that led straight into, if you ever get lonely. And then Kyle uh, put a guitar solo into it, and we organized a bridge. We rewrote the entire song, apart from the chorus. But that's kind of what I do, and it's what Kyle does. It's like being a producer. You can look at a song, and if you take the best elements, and then you come in from the side, 
and you use that as a surprise, the best part of the song is going to be in a different key or whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I, don't, I don't look at it that objectively. Again, I close my eyes and I walk forward. And if I close my eyes hard enough, the room disappears and all that matters is the song. And then you can just, the song's there. Right. It just comes out of nowhere. I don't know where it comes from. You know, it's such a great track and it's one that we need to take a break for so we can all take a listen. So from John's new album, Rough and Tumble, this is If You Ever Get Lonely from our guest today, John Waite. Thanks for calling. It's so good to hear your voice. You keep breaking up. In all the static and the noise But I'll keep listening Cause I never had a choice When it came to you I'd love to see you If you're ever out this way You sound happy Guess things are working out okay And I'm getting better Putting one foot in front of the other And I know that California's not to blame And I know there's millions of people in L.A. But if you ever get lonely If you miss me If you need some Who loves you That you need to hear You know where to find me If you ever get lonely Sounds like a good time Going down at the other end You got a new life And a new love And a whole new set of friends And I am listening You expect me to pretend that I don't love you I don't love you But if you ever get lonely If you miss me If you need someone to listen Even if it's only The sound of someone's voice who loves you That you need to hear
Well, the Rough and Tumble album is is available through iTunes. You can also purchase it, uh, I think, an autographed copy uh, on CD through your website at what, uh, yeah. johnwaitthesinger.com. Hey, well, John, thanks so much for joining us on Inside Music Cast. We know you're going to be out on the road in the States quite a bit this uh, this summer. And uh, if you want more information, uh, check out his website at johnwaitthesinger.com, and you can see the entire tour schedule. Plus, you can buy uh, his new album and, and look for other things there as well, more information. Or get it on Spotify. <laughs> check it out on Spotify. <laughs> John, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you very much. I can't thank you enough for all your time. Th- Hello, Kim, and, and nice to talk to you, and goodbye. All righty. Take yeah, care. Thank you, John. All right, bye-bye. You take care. Bye-bye. Special thanks to John Waite for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. We'd also like to thank our correspondents, Kim Riley, Brian Pearson, Scott Gross, Max Zape, Mikhail Ingstrom, Uwe Wright, and Scott Sheriff for their continued support and content development for Inside Music Cast. Inside Music Cast is powered by Cabello Associates and Earshot Audio Post. For information about becoming a sponsor and sharing your message with thousands of music fans around the world, please visit InsideMusicCast.com for contact information. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thanks for listening to Inside Music Cast. Inside Music Cast.